A quick note at the top here. There is some language in this episode, and I just wanted you to be aware in case you were listening and there were small children within earshot. So do with that information what you will. And now, here is my daughter to count us in to our regular introduction. One, two, three, four! You're listening to Song and Story, conversations with songwriters about their songs. You can support this project on Patreon, and you can learn more at songandstorypodcast.com. I lived in the D.C. area for five years, from 2008 to 2013. About halfway through my time there was when I really started getting serious about music. I recorded my first studio album. I started booking and playing more shows. I networked with other area musicians. And of all the talented songwriters I met there, I think Wendell Kimbrough is my favorite. He's down-to-earth, humble, and incredibly talented. Whether his songs are playful or poetic, they're always thoughtful. And the song of his that we'll be listening to in a moment is, well, it's hard to describe, but I think it's brilliant. So let's start with this. I want you to think about all the people in your life who helped you get where you are today. Think about the people who have been there for you when you've needed someone the most. Because whether we're talking about raising children or raising adults, helping them get back on their feet after they've hit rock bottom, the age-old adage applies. It takes a village. We all get by with a little help from our friends. It might not be our friends specifically, but the point is, whether the help we receive comes from our friends, our family, or a total stranger, no one makes it through this life with their body, mind, spirit, and soul intact without a little help from somebody. We need each other, and love requires action. Sometimes love is tender. Sometimes love is tough. And as Wendell Kimbrough suggests, sometimes love requires you to break the law. Hi, my name is Wendell Kimbrough in Fairhope, Alabama. You're listening to the Song and Story podcast. And this is my song, Two Ways to Be Worthless, from my 2011 album, Things That Can't Be Taught. Cool. Uh, is it Kimbrough? It is. I've always said Kimbrough. You are actually probably in the majority in doing that. And um, I don't actually usually correct people because... Um, <laughs> You've never corrected me. Yeah, I don't, I don't really correct anybody on it. So, um, But I do still say Kimbrough. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay, uh, do it again if you could. Uh, do the, the album first and then the song title. Hey guys, this is Wendell Kimbrew. This is a song from my 2011 album, Things That Can't Be Taught, called Two Ways to Be Worthless. Slip into the night 
leave behind my wife and kids And I drink to feel alright When the sadness gets me And I slip into despair I close my eyes and curl up tight And I beg to be left there Find me where I'm hiding Look me in the eyes Do whatever else it takes To make me tell you why Listen with compassion While I sit and stare And ask me how it happened And show me that you curious to see where our conversation goes today, <laughs> partly because like, I hadn't thought about this song in a long time. I mean, I, 
you know, I've looked at it here today, but um, I've changed a lot in the last eight years. So it's like, it's, it's going to be interesting to kind of reflect on it a little bit. So Sure. When, when's the last time you played it live? Do you remember? I mean, it's, it's, it's probably been since like, it was probably like 2014. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think I did a singer songwriter show for my church here. Um, we have a little like pavilion, like an outdoor pavilion that's set up to host concerts. And a few months after we moved here, I did a show for them and I did a bunch of my bunch of the stuff from things that can't be taught and um, find your way home. Just kind of my like folk singer songwriter stuff. And I probably did this song at that show. And I've done so little like singer songwriter stuff since then. I don't think I've played it in four years. So that's not like a repudiation of the song or like, you know, uh, I just kind of felt a call in a, in a different direction with what I, what I've been working on music. Yeah. Yeah. You're just in a different place. Yeah. Um, let me, let me start with this. Yeah. The very first house concert I ever played was at the Quincy house in DC. Oh Yeah. I never knew about house concerts. I didn't know they were a thing. And I just started doing music full time. And I learned about this place. I think Rosie Thomas had just played there. And I emailed them and they said, yeah, we have this. uh, We'd love to do one in December if you want to play. There's another local guy named Wendell Kimbrough who will also be playing. I was like, okay, cool. So that was the first time I met you. First time I heard your music. And the way that you introduced this song, I thought was really interesting. And I don't know if you remember how you did it. Um, And I'm obviously, this is not verbatim. But you mentioned that you spend a lot of time working with the homeless. Yeah. And you want to be there for them. You want to be present to them. You want to have sympathy. You want to empathize with them. Sometimes, every once in a while, you just kind of want to give them a kick in the butt to get moving. Mm -hmm. Where did the song come from? Man. Yeah, what and it is it's such a weird song. I mean, I love that you you love it. I kind of I love it too. You know, it's like looking back at it after several years of distance. I'm like, it's hilarious. It cracks me up. I think I can I can laugh at it and appreciate both what's good about it and also kind of laugh at me a little bit for what a just the audacity of <laughs> of the song. But um, yeah, you know, so like. I worked with the homeless in D.C. as part of my role at um, at our church. But even before that, I had I, I spent a summer in New Orleans, did an internship at an urban ministry there in a poor neighborhood and like had a lot of curiosity about kind of the call on Christians and the church, particularly to love their neighbors. And I remember um, this is just like a little flashback. I remember being in Philadelphia with a friend. We were visiting some folks at, I think it was, is it Eastern University? Is that what it's called? Um, I don't know. I'm honestly not too familiar with Philly. Yeah. I've been there a couple times, but I don't, I don't. Yeah, it's okay. It's, I think it's Eastern University. And, um, and there was like a group of students going downtown to pass out like sack lunches to, to homeless guys and, and gals. And, um, Man, there was this guy, and I'm trying to remember the actual like 
just the details of the moment, but it made an impression on me. There was a guy who like obviously had a relationship and some history with um, the person that was kind of my tour guide, you know, if, if you will, as we're like walking through the subway system where a bunch of these homeless guys were sleeping and um, whoever was kind of leading this expedition was like trying to get this guy just to get up off the ground and like have a conversation with him and like making this kind of compassionate, empathic kind of plea for the guy to, you know, like, Hey, you know, you know, I'm, I'm so-and-so your friend, like, you know, we spent all this time together last week, like, you know, or the week before that. And, you know, like, what's up, man? Like, let's, let's talk. You look like you're having a hard time. Like you're hurting, like, you know, talk to me. And, and the guy, you know, just, wouldn't respond and I it just made an impression on me it's like man this guy won't even like look him in the eye and I think you know it's funny like looking back on that I'm like probably that guy the homeless guy was like suffering from some pretty severe like shame you know and I I mean he may have been under the influence of something as well I, I don't know but but just the like the inability to like look somebody in the eye um, to me says shame, you know, and so that just made this, this impression on me. I can still kind of like see that image in my mind. And then in, when I moved to DC, I worked with homeless guys at a low barrier shelter. So these were mostly guys that were like mentally ill, substance abuse issues. And they were, uh, a humbling crowd to work with. Cause they were like guys that you, you know, you just, they, they've been handed a lot of bad, a lot of bad cards in their deck. If that makes sense. Sure. Life had given them a lot of bad, a lot of bad hands. Um, and yeah, like I, I kind of like saw myself as somebody who was really compassionate and trying to help these guys. And I was trying to like make time to really sit with them and listen to them and, and, and help them not necessarily, you know, through like, Hey, here's some money or whatever, but just like, Hey, I'll listen to your story. I'll, um, I'll try to connect with you emotionally, encourage you. But I think, you know, I think I kind of like saw myself as like a little bit of a loner and, you know, I kind of knew I had my own demons, um, and I just kind of was, was a little bit of a like there before the grace of God go I kind of thing. Sure. Which is what got me probably writing this song to begin with. And it was like, a, um, how would I want my friends to deal with me if that was me? You know, and I and I got um, got hooked on a, you know, a narcotic or, um, you know, just went down a, a dark road and um kind of cut off from my circle. Like, how would I want, how would I want my friends to deal with me? And I was a big believer in tough love, you know, (laughs) and and certainly with regard to me, like (laughs) I'm pretty severe on myself, you know, I'm like, I now see some of that is just like my inner critic, which is (laughs) something I'm actually like trying to recover from, you know? (laughs) Sure. Sure. But, but, um, but at the time, I mean, I guess, you know, it's like 25 or something. It was like, man, I want my friends to like, I want them to 
hand it to me, you know, if that's me, I want them to like get in my face and be like, Hey dude, you know, like get it together. <laughs> right. Right. Tough it right. Up, buckaroo, you know, <laughs> um, quit being so selfish, you know? So, so is this like, you know, maybe even that one particular incident in the, uh, in the subway in Philly, do you think this specific thing is kind of what's behind that second stanza, you know, find me where I'm hiding. Yeah. Look me in the eyes do whatever else it takes to make me tell you why, you know, why I'm here right now. Yeah. So is this the type of thing where you can kind of pinpoint specific incidences that led to the progression of the, of the lyrics? Yeah, I think so. I think that that's why that comes to mind, like that visual from Philly. And it's weird that I can't remember much of the rest of that story. Like I can't even remember exactly why I was in Philly. I know I was there with a friend, um, it's kind of like a weekend, but how we ended up with this group of college students going downtown to pass out lunches to the homeless. It's, it's vague. <laughs> yeah. But, but I was just so struck by just this man who was just crippled by shame. And it just was so, so sad, you know, such a sad thing to see. So yeah, I think that's definitely like the image that I'm like going back to in that verse you know, telling my friends, like, get down, get down on your knees if you need to, to like, look me in the eyes and get me to like, snap out of it, you know, like wake up and, and tune into you and see you, you know. Tell, tell me to stop mourning for the tragedy of me. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, man. Cause like part of what I see in this song is I'm like, I, I, I laugh at it because I'm like, okay, there's, there's, there's some depth here, right? There's obviously, and I think the second half of the song maybe is the more, like, there's more depth there. But I also see in it, there's like some assumptions I was making about people that are, you know, in a place of addiction or in a place of, you know, total despair. And and part of it's that they're just kind of being selfish and they need to kind of like, you know, get over it, get over themselves. And, you know, I look at that now and I'm like, man, you know, I've been through a few things since then. I'm like, really, that's a pretty simple way of looking at yeah. fiction, you know. Yeah. You know, what's what's funny is I, I did not think about that at the time either. But as I've been listening to the song, you know, a couple times a day in preparation for for this conversation, I've definitely had that thought, you know, as well. Like, it kind of seems a little overly simplistic, yep. but I think that where you're on safe ground is that it's written in the first person. Sure. And so it's okay. Like it, it doesn't come off as uh, necessarily ignorant or, or judgmental. If you're hypothetically describing how you might act, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And I guess in that light, I'm like, yeah, cause you know, self-pity is something that I struggled with and still do sometimes, you know. So it's like if if that was me, you know, in that place of addiction, like maybe this is a pretty apt letter for me. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny. So where did you uh, get the idea then to add this, this second dimension? Because you, you just mentioned that... Um, you know, that the second kind of part of it, the other way to be worthless, the second way to be worthless, that 
is kind of maybe what enhances or gives more depth to the song. And I absolutely agree with you. Uh, how, how did you come to that? Like, did you write the way the lyrics are in the finished version of the song? Did you write them in sequence or did you kind of just start writing? Because I will do that sometimes where I start writing and as I figure out, you know, where I'm going with it or as the story is kind of unfolding itself, then I will go back and like reorder stanzas and reorder lines and change things. Do you remember how it started unfolding structure wise? It's funny, man. I, I, I do remember um, having a light bulb come on. Like I did not sit down to write this song as it, as it is. Um, I sat down to write a song called when I hit rock bottom. So the, what we've just talked about, the kind of front half of the song is the song that I was intending to write. And somewhere in the midst of writing it, it was like a lightning bolt hit me between the eyes. And I was like, whoa, me like sinking into depression and and addiction is not the only way that I could make a wreck of my life. And it's, it might not even be the most likely way you know, <laughs> that I, that I might make a wreck of my life. Sure. Just given your own tendencies. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, it's like, you know, I'm also somebody that like really wants approval and wants success and wants people to, you know, see what I do as, as good and valuable. And you, you want them to acknowledge your artistry and value it and buy it yeah. and come to your yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> come to your shows yeah. uh, it's like yeah i i wish i could say it's just about artistry but like you know i'm a human and uh you know it's like and i would like to make money too <laughs> you know? right and you'd like to tell yourself that the only reason you're making money is so that you can keep creating art right <laughs> right yeah that's that's definitely i've definitely had that conversation with myself um and I don't know if I would have even like said it. I don't know if I could have like said it this way at the time, but it was just like this kind of feel feeling my way through this song. And it was like, but man, I could, I could get just as lost and self-absorbed and just as uh, I loved you said earlier, like the, you know, the, the thing is about being present, fully present to the people around you that you're called to love. I was like, man, I could be just as unpresent by succeeding at life. Sure. And by making a lot of money or at least having the like the carrot dangling in front of me of, you know, just keep working, you know, just keep get stay on the road, like play more shows like, you know, and that's that's when the song became two ways to be worthless. (laughs) It's like. I could hit the big time, you know, or whatever, and uh, and lose track of what matters, maybe even more readily, more quickly, you know, that way. Opposite contexts, same effect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, and it to me now, like reading it, it speaks to, um, it's really two sides of the same coin of addiction. Yeah, sure. Because... We have we have socially acceptable addictions and we have socially unacceptable addictions, but they're equally like spiritually destructive, you know. So from a like 
standpoint of like health and wholeness and spiritual like reality, it's pretty arbitrary which ones we've decided are okay. And this is like a whole rabbit trail that we could go down. But like I read a book a couple of years ago um, by a guy named Terrence Real called I Don't Want to Talk About It, The Secret Legacy of Male Depression, hmm. which for anyone listening is the singular most fascinating book I've read in a decade. I highly recommend it. It's a, it's got a pretty tough title and uh, a lot of people don't want to <laughs> are like, I don't want to read that. But he goes, he goes through and he talks about how men, um, men do not report depression. Um, just like across society, like men, um, men do not like go to the doctor and say, I'm depressed. At least, um, the, the percentage, like the numbers are really small compared to women. Okay. So like culturally depression is kind of like a, um, it's like a, a female disease. At least that's how we've kind of constructed. That's, that's how we perceive it. Yeah. That's how we perceive it. But, but in reality, men are as there's as, there's as much depression among men, if not more than there is among women, but men don't men have been socialized not to talk about things like sadness or, or like, it's just, it's unmasculine, if you will, to say I'm depressed. And so men basically channel the energy of depression into, into addictive behaviors. And if you take the like statistics of like drug and alcohol addiction and things like that, and lay them on top of the like statistics of depression, basically men and women even out. Okay. So, so, um, the, the idea is like men don't report depression, they medicate it. Hmm. But a lot of what the book talks about is how like the kind of socially accepted, um, medicine for male depression is workaholism. Oh, interesting. And so men deal with their sadness, men deal with their pain through achievement and as a society like we've basically said that's okay like that's that's a that's a fair way to you know to deal with your pain because you're making money you know <laughs> because you're you're putting food on the table your kids are in the good schools exactly yeah nobody's going to nobody's going to ask questions about the state of your 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 soul um and this is even in the church you know like if your kids are well dressed and you're and they're yeah, they're in the private schools or the good schools or whatever, and you've got, you know, two late model cars in the driveway and like, you know, you're you're presenting well because you're making good money. But, you know, behind that, so many men are have really like unresolved pain and and um trauma from childhood and anyway. Like I said, it's a rabbit trail. I could go down that. I'm passionate about it. I think it's a really interesting. And for me, it's been like a helpful paradigm to kind of think through. But when I look at this song, I'm like, yeah, this is about, you know, this is about two guys or one guy going two different ways. And one way is like the kind of socially unaccepted, addictive outlet for sadness and despair. And the other is like the socially baptized, like, commended, you know, yeah, you're, you got a record contract. You're making good money. You're like on the road, 200 dates a year, you know, you're successful. 
but it can still be a way of medicating pain that's not ultimately like a move toward wholeness or or at least you know as you say it in the in the first bit um a form of hiding yeah uh, of, of running away from problems or whatever is making you feel that way and just not not dealing with them that's right that's right so did you read that book uh before writing the song or after and it kind of illuminated it a little bit yeah after okay. years after yeah yeah did you think about your own song when you were reading it? i did not not at all no. <laughs> it's funny again somehow this like this song just has kind of been like in the back recesses of my mind for a few years like i haven't really like I haven't dug it out and looked at it in a while. So <laughs> I love, I'm, I'm looking at the last part of the song and I'm just, I really kind of let my imagination run with this. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly there's like this woman with a, with a purse. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's, let's talk about that because I don't know at what point in this conversation I said it. Whether or not this was your full intention, you're talking about, you know, these two very, you know, negative, unhealthy, detrimental, irresponsible ways of living. Okay. But the feel of the song kind of changes every couple of stanzas. And in between the two ways to be worthless, you have the solo, (laughs) which what, what instrument is playing this? Oh my gosh. Is it the clarinet? I think it's a clarinet. Yeah. Which is like not <laughs> not what you think of when you think of homelessness and depression and despair. Especially when it has this almost, you know, ragtime New Orleans kind of yeah. kind of feel to it. And so this is what I this is what I've always really appreciated about the song is that there are these very serious ideas at the core of it. But on the surface, the feel of it is this very lighthearted. It's almost like the music itself is the spoonful of sugar <laughs> that, that helps the medicine go down and hopefully break down in the body, affect the mind and open it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I also mentioned your, your ability to, to go into the darkest, you know, corners of, of humanity in your music, but also to kind of enter into the terrain of the theater of the absurd and you, I think you go there when you, when you get to this last verse, basically saying, if I do, if I do all of this, if either one of these things happens, if I hit the big time and I'm just, my family's at home alone again because of it, shoot me in the femur with the handgun in your purse. Tell me what you're going to do. Hurts me, but hurts you worse. Man, this is brilliant songwriting. <laughs> Thanks. It's I it's and I'm it's envious. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. What what made you think of that, or did it just kind of come out? Do you remember? You know, I'm like, I think that the handgun in the purse probably came from. Um, do you remember that movie, The Blind Side? Did you ever see that? Oh yeah, with Sandra Bullock. Yeah, and she's there's like some point in the movie where it becomes apparent that this like, you know highly like made up Southern woman uh, is packing heat (laughs) at all times. And so that's probably where that image came from, like out of the recesses (laughs) of my imagination. (laughs) 
it's so funny though because it like it is it again is like i'm putting i'm putting my friend to whom i'm writing this letter in an almost kind of like parental role you know right like that line tell me what you're going to do hurts me but hurts you worse like that's just that's like you know that's like the line that you know every like television dad or mom says you know before they like discipline their child right so i think at that point i'm definitely like tongue is in cheek and i'm like you know let's let's get let's get silly about this i think i do know kind of one point i'm trying to make in the second half of the song there is like in some way i'm actually kind of saying that the wealth and fame way of hiding and running is is maybe more toxic oh yeah and so actually like you know swing a bigger stick if i go that way because i'm i'm actually probably less likely to listen to you you know <laughs> like right like shout louder you know pull out the gun like you know and and i think that actually still rings true for me like if you're you know if you're homeless you in some ways are like you're aware of the fact that life isn't working for you. Sure. You know, Jesus says like, blessed are the the poor, blessed are the meek, like blessed are those who mourn, you know? And like, there's an insight there that like, when you're aware that life isn't working, the pain of that can bring you to, to the place of health where like redemption is possible. But when you're, when you're convinced that you've got it going on, you know, and everybody's telling you you're, you're awesome, but you've, you know, you've estranged yourself from those you're supposed to be closest to. Like, that's a more toxic, deadly, you know, place to be in a lot of ways. And so (laughs) I'm trying in the song to say like, man, if I get there, I'm going to really need a dramatic intervention. You know, (laughs) could you say it's kind of highlighting the, uh, the, the drastic difference then maybe between, uh, you know, being addicted to a substance and being addicted to the self. Mm. Sure. Um, that one is maybe more physical, chemical than mental. Mm-hmm. And the other is more kind of mental, spiritual, mm-hmm. emotional. Yeah. Does that seem fair? Like a fair assumption to make? Yeah. Uh, or am I ignorant? Well, no, no, no. I mean, it could be both. No, I... <laughs> They're not mutually exclusive. I mean, like substance addiction um, can happen to people depending on kind of your genetic makeup and life circumstances. I mean, you know, I think the opioid crisis is like making it clear. You know, some people just kind of like literally stumble into this and the like chemical is so strong and their brain is so hooked on it. Um it's 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 actually easier to see them as victims right and i think that's that's in some ways yeah like less the case when you're looking at somebody who has made for themselves a life where uh they're being rewarded and through you know compensation and fame and in a lot of ways the world is telling them you are a success you are you're good, you know? Yeah. They're, they're more than happy to let that balloon of self-worth be inflated. Yeah. You know, 
I, I'm, I'm interested in, in writing music that makes people think on a variety of levels. And I'm not, it's not my goal to make music for children. Like that said, you don't want to alienate a fan base by giving them something that they don't feel comfortable listening to, you know, in front of their kids. And so the line about, uh, you know, tell me, tell me I'm an asshole to ignore them while I'm gone. Um, there's no other language in any of your songs. Not that that's objectively good or bad, you know, did you, did you think about that or mull it over or try and find a different word? And I asked because like, I've, I've got a song that I'm not quite finished with it, but in the chorus, I, I say bullshit. Mm-hmm. So it gets repeated about three, three or four times. Um, but the song is ultimately about drug addiction. I've played it for a select few people in private and I got really good responses from all of them. And one of them, his, I played it for him and he said that his, his brother, um, had, has, has suffered from drug addiction throughout his life and he said that uh in reference to singing bullshit in the chorus i finished playing the song and he just said that's like exactly how our conversations go Mm. it's almost like there's no other word that you can say that packs as much of a punch and so i kind of within the context of of this song you know you you kind of can hear your friend grabbing you by the lapels and just saying you're an asshole you know yeah Stop being an asshole. Yeah. Go home. Yeah. <laughs> Quit drinking. Go home. Love your wife. Love your kids. Just stop being an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> how did you how did you handle that? Did you even think about it at all? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I did think about it honestly kind of similar to some of what you're saying. Like I wanted the song to provoke, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, not not just to not for the sake of being controversial. Yeah, not like, oh, yeah, if I, like, get in people's face, then I'll this will be, like, a smash hit or something. But right. um, but just, like, yeah, I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to get people to think, you know, about addiction and about um, presence and about, you know, what is love. And I think, yeah, ex- ex- kind of ex- really honestly exactly what you're saying. Like, there's – I can't think of a better word to capture – what I would want somebody to say to me if I'm in this kind of self-absorbed, um, neglecting those around me that I'm supposed to be loving space, you know, it's like, I need you to get my attention. You know, I need something that's going to snap me out of it. And, uh, but it is funny, like using that language in the song, <laughs> you know, I had a, I'll tell you, I'll say this. I, I had a, an interview with a Christian magazine, um, a long interview. And we had, I mean, it was rich. We talked about all kinds of stuff. And I think there were some really good kind of things that came out of that interview. But at the end of the day, the guy was writing a review of the album and he had like 600 words or something like that, you know, so he didn't have a lot of space. And um, he ended up spending about half of his words talking about the fact that I used the word asshole. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And I think it was because he, you know, he felt like he needed to defend that to his readers who would not get it. Like, like he didn't want it to be on him. 
if he didn't mention it, they checked out the album and were offended. Yeah, e- either that or he just like he just knew it would be an obstacle for people once they bought the record, and so he wanted to like you know encourage them to think broadly about it or whatever. Sure. But it was funny because we spent maybe like twenty seconds talking about that in the interview, and it took up half of what actually ended up getting printed. And uh, you know, to me, that's like a little bit of a commentary on like church Christian culture like that we're we're I I don't know I mean now I'm a dad you know so I'm like I'm sympathetic to the concern of like hey what are you playing for your kids you know and and what are they going to hear and what are they you know what what's going to be normal language for them um so I I see that but it's like we can be kind of legalistic about what words are okay and what words aren't and kind of miss the like weightier matters of the law, if you will. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm glad I used the word. <laughs> uh, I think it says what I wanted to say. And now I will say this too, when I, when I do like a live show, when I would do a live show and I, and I'm singing this song, usually about two or three verses into the song, it would occur to me to check the room and, <laughs> And look around and just see, like, is this a bunch of 20-somethings or is this, like, a room full of, like, parents and small children? And if it was, if, it, if there were a bunch of kids in the room, I would say, uh, instead of instead of asshole, I would say jerk face. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I don't even know what jerk face is, you know, but it, right. like, I think that actually just occurred to me in the moment one time I was doing a show and I was just like, you know, I look out and I'm like, I can't say asshole here. I gotta right, right. change the lyric. Right. But, and then it became jerk face anytime there were kids in the room. So what took you to the shotgun? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think at that point in this song, I'm like beyond, I'm literally just like, as I'm writing that song, I'm, I'm in a, like, I'm in a flow and I'm just like, I'm just like visually like, I'm like watching a movie in my imagination, you know? Yeah. It's like, pull out the, the, the handgun from your purse. And if, if that doesn't work, like get out the bigger gun. And, and then, you know, like then there's a wheelchair, like put me in a wheelchair and throw me in the back of your truck and drag my ass home basically. And tell me that you're saving me from my so-called good luck. (laughs) You know, it's just like, it's for your own good, man. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're like screaming in pain because your femur's been hit with a handgun. <laughs> You've been hit somewhere with a shotgun, and he's like, it's all right. It'll be all right. <laughs> I'm saving you. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Yeah. Just quit quit moaning. Recover from the shattered <laughs> femur. Right, right. <laughs> You'll heal from that, and then we'll still have to work on you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, man. Dude. So then, then it's the punchline. And this is a phenomenal punchline. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, so last two lines, uh, when the cops, they ask you to explain crossing that line. So, you know, when the cops pull up at your house and are like, so you shot your friend, uh, we're going to have to take you in for questioning. You know, it's like, okay, so when the cops ask you to explain crossing that line, you can show them this here letter. And tell them love is not a crime. So, yeah, it's funny. Like, I didn't, you know, yeah, you, you're, re- I guess I'm revealing at that point, like, okay, this whole song is a letter to my friends. And 
it's giving them permission to deal with me, be, be it ever so severely, you know, <laughs> if I kind of lose myself, you know, one of these two ways, but especially if fame goes to my head and I like am a huge success or whatever, have some kind of big break and start, you know, losing my soul. This, this letter is at once asking them adamantly to, to do illegal things to you. To pull to pull you out of it while absolving them. Yeah, and and it'll be and it'll be love. That it'll be yeah. my definition of love. Man, I I can't emphasize it enough. I'm trying not to like fangirl over it. But <laughs> I've I've loved this song for a long time, both for the substance, but also just for the for the structure and the wit. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that because I don't, you know. I don't want to inflate your ego too much. <laughs> yeah, lest I lest I um, go down some kind of um, self worship uh, path to destruction. It's funny. One other thing I feel like I should throw out just about this song and kind of like I think I had permission in my imagination to even conceive of a song like this because of Randy Newman. I can see that because of the tone and the feel of it. Yeah, it's like Randy's such a great he does the kind of tongue in cheek like um he writes about really serious things playfully, you know. He tells kind of crazy stories like and so I think just the whole like feel and even down to like the the song structure, you know, like the chord progression and the kind of New Orleans chord progression uh, and, 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 and instrumentation like as I think about this now I'm like oh yeah that's definitely like a Randy Newman shaped the imagination that wrote that song <laughs> I guess when I hit rock bottom and I slip into the night when I leave behind my wife and kids and I drink to feel alright Sadness gets me And I slip into despair I close my eyes and curl up tight And I beg to be left there Find me where I'm hiding Look me in the eyes Do whatever else it takes To make me tell you why with compassion while I sit and stare and ask me how it happened and show me that you care please don't leave with comfort ringing in my ears please be sure and say the words you know I need to hear to stop mourning for the tragedy of me Tell me to start thinking about someone else in need Tell me about my wife and kids And then tell me about my mom Tell me I'm an asshole to ignore them while I'm gone I hit rock bottom and I 
I think that telling me that everything will be alright is anything I need. When I hit the big time. Calling on the phone With record deals and spinning wheels That take me far from home When of fame and fortune I am chasing what is mine And my family is at home alone again Most of the time Shooting me in the femur With a handgun your purse Tell me what you're going to do Hurts me but hurts you worse Or maybe use a shotgun If I seem really stuck Take me home in a wheelchair In the flatbed of your truck Crossing that line Can show them this here letter And say love Love is not A crime If you enjoyed my conversation with Wendell, you can check out more of his music. It's available on iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, Bandcamp, all those sites. You can also go straight to his own website, wendellk.com. That's Wendell, the letter K, dot com. If you enjoy this podcast, maybe you'd like to help support it financially, then go to patreon.com slash songandstory to learn more. Now, normally at this point in the episodes, I play a bonus clip to give you a little more exposure and insight into the artist. Well, just like episode 15 featuring Ike Ndolo, my conversation with Wendell went for a really long time. And so, just as I did with Ike's episode, I will be posting a bonus episode featuring more of my conversation with Wendell. It will be available on all podcast platforms in just a few days. Wendell Kimbrew is a diverse songwriter. And the song that we featured in this episode is very different from the kind of stuff that Wendell has been doing in the last few years. And in the bonus episode to come, we're going to talk about it. So be on the lookout for that. And in the meantime, thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please share the love and share the links. Mm -hmm.